0: Thank you, Mark. Okay, we're going to be in the book of Daniel in chapter 2 this morning. If you've not got a Bible with you and you'd like to follow, then we do have a few that we can lend out. If you'd like to raise your hand, then someone will be able to bring a Bible to you. But uh, Daniel chapter 2, which is somewhere in the middle, a few books after Isaiah. But just before we uh, read this section of the passage together, a little bit of... um, Context. Now, perhaps um, it's a bit ludicrous, but imagine if instead of me standing up here this morning, Arnold had stood up and made the following announcement. As many of you know, a while ago we had some refurbishments made to the church building, the Jubilee Centre, um, new carpets, these nice, comfy new chairs, a new central heating system. Um, but uh, whilst uh, This was being done, and this work was being carried out. Um, A book was found. Um, It's been hidden away for years, and it's called the Bible. Um, It's apparently got all sorts of things that um, teach Christians how we should be living our lives, and frankly, we've been ignoring all of them. And uh, So we're going to gather here, and I'm going to read the entire book to you now. Now, it sounds ridiculous, but something similar actually happened um, in the time of God's people, um, 600 years before the birth of Jesus, under the reign of King Josiah. Whilst renovating the temple, the high priest discovered the book of the law that had been missing for some time. Now, I don't know what the priests had been teaching from and basing their actions on at this point, but um, it had been gone. And this is something of a picture of the state that God's people were in. turning away from God time after time, king after king, who ignored God's will and the way that he called his people to live. Um, And what's more, these were probably the half of God's people that were getting on a little bit better and being a little bit more obedient to God's word because there was also the northern kingdom of Israel as well as the southern kingdom of Judah. They didn't really have any good kings um, and they were constantly disobeying God, turning away from him and rebelling from him. And it was rare to see somebody like the king, Josiah, who actually repented and brought the people back to the word of God. Times like this were a real exception um, in the wo- in, amongst God's people. They were like almost uh, a beam of light. Um, breaking through the dark cloud of just being in rebellion to God. So because of this, he brought about judgment on his people in order to bring them back to him more faithfully. Um, and, it's, and it's at a time such as this that we now narrow in. Um, God's people have been exiled out of their promised land, their own territory, um, by the Babylonians overruling them and taking them out of their land and exiling them. And it's at this point that we then zoom in to the life of one man called Daniel. Daniel was part of the faithful remnant of God's people who had followed him and uh, remained faithful to him. And him, along with some of his friends, um, had been shown real favor by God and had been called to be special advisors to the king, to the Babylonian king, Nebuchadnezzar. And it's at this point that we now jump into Daniel chapter 2 and we're going to read through to verse 19. In the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His mind was troubled and he could not sleep. So the king summoned the magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and astrologers to tell him what he had dreamed. When they came in and stood before the king, he said to them, I have had a dream that troubles me and I want to know what it means. Then the astrologers answered the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream and we will interpret it. The king replied to the astrologers, This is what I have firmly decided. If you do not tell me what my dream was and interpret it, I will have you cut into pieces and your houses turned into piles of rubble. But if you tell me the dream and explain it, you will receive from me gifts and rewards of great honor. So tell me the dream and interpret it for me. Once more, they replied, let the king tell his servants the dream and we will interpret it. Then the king answered, I am certain that you are trying to gain time because you realize that this is what I've firmly decided. If you do not tell me the dream, there is just one penalty for you. You have conspired to tell me misleading and wicked things, hoping that situation will change. So then, tell me the dream and I will know that you can interpret it for me. The astrologers answered the king, there is not a man on earth who can do what the king asks. No king, however great and mighty, has ever asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or astrologer. What the king asks is too difficult. No one can reveal it except the gods, and they do not live among men. This made the king so angry and furious that he ordered the execution of all the wise men of Babylon. So the decree was issued to put the wise men to death, and men were sent to look for Daniel and his friends to put them to death. When Ariok, the commander of the king's guard, had gone out to put to death the wise men of Babylon, Daniel spoke to him with wisdom and tact. He asked the king's officer, why did the king issue such a harsh decree? Ariok then explained the matter to Daniel. At at this, Daniel went into the king and asked for time so that he might interpret the dream for him. Then Daniel returned to his house and explained the matter to his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. He urged them to plead for mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that he and his friends might not be executed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. During the night, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision. Okay, so at the start of this chapter, um, we find King Nebuchadnezzar in a time of real great distress. He was troubled by his dreams, and he turned to his wise men for help. He needed somebody to advise him on the meanings and the interpretation of his dreams in a way that would leave no doubt whatsoever. We read that he summoned a wide group of people, magicians, all sorts of backgrounds from different countries, enchanters, sorcerers, astrologers. And it appears that the king didn't really have one faithful person that he knew with absolute certainty that he could turn to, but rather he kind of had the who's who um, of wise people and who were into all sorts of different things at his beck and call. And it shows in the way he gathered all these men around him, and especially at this time in particular, Nebuchadnezzar desperately needed an answer. And at this point, the astrologers were only too happy to oblige. In verse 4, we hear him say, "'O king, live forever!' Tell your servants the dream and we'll show you the interpretation. No problem. The king's so called wise men, they had a great job, to be honest. They'd get to be in the court of the king. They had so many privileges. They would eat food from his table, they'd get a share in the influence that he had and shape, help shape decisions about the course of the nation, which was a great nation overall. But unfortunately for them, this time it wasn't quite so simple as what they'd perhaps become used to knowing. The king needed full assurance that he was being told the truth. It was too important for there to be any doubt. So he sets up three, three, three conditions and he sets the stakes high. He's not going to tell them what the dream is. Secondly, he promises them great rewards and honor if they get it correct. And thirdly, a little bit of extra motivation. He tells them that he'll kill them if they fail to tell him his dream. So all of a sudden, the job of the wise men becomes a little less comfortable. So the sorcerers, they're in a a difficult position, these wise men, they're now having to plead for God to tell him, sorry, plead to the king to tell him what the dream was, Um, because they too are now put in a desperate situation, and they're saying, in verse 7, let the king tell his servants the dream, and we will interpret it, but the king's not going to budge. He's saying, I'm certain that you are trying to gain time, because you realize that this is what I've firmly decided. Their hypocrisy begins to infuriate the king. Until this point, the astrologers have been totally happy to help him and to, to influence and to speak into his decisions, perhaps saying, yes, you should do this and you should do that. According to the stars, do this. Ooh. According to the spirits, maybe do that. Or perhaps it was maybe out of more of a concern for their relationship to the king. Maybe they'd use flattery. They're using these words like, oh, king, live forever. Um, nice words that he want to want to hear. And they would have extolled, they'd have bigged up the powers and the things that they based their advice on, the wisdom and the practices of perhaps their country or of perhaps their age. They'd have been the first to champion these methods. Turn to them and you will find your answers. Turn to them and they'll tell you the direction that you should go. However, when their advice and the source of their advice began to come into real scrutiny, it didn't stand up. When the king required to them to use these methods in a way that would leave absolutely no doubt whatsoever, they couldn't. They said here in verse 10, There's not a man on earth who can do what the king asks. No king, however great and mighty, has ever asked such a thing of them. any magician or enchanter or astrologer. What the king asks is too difficult. No one can reveal it to the king except the gods, and they do not live among men. They've changed their tune. They're in a situation now where they're having to blame shift. Well, actually, the thing you're asking, it's a little unreasonable. No king's asked this before. And, and, and no, no power on earth, no wise man, no astrologer could ever answer some kind of question like this. It's impossible. It's not us, really. It's, it's, it's the question that you're asking. No one really can, can do this. Ooh, I'm not sure. They're squirming. They're making excuses. The authenticity of their source of advice has been undermined. And not only that, it looks like their motives are starting to be exposed. So we need to watch out. As the authenticity of their wisdom is exposed and begins to look like their real passion actually was perhaps to gain position and influence amongst the king with the advice and the words that they would give to him, these men did well out of it. They gained wealth, as we were saying. They gained influence and maybe even they gained control of the leadership. I don't know if how many of you have seen the Lord of the Rings trilogy or read the books, um, but if you have, there's a character in there called Wormtongue, and um, it's a great portrayal of a certain character, and he's, a, he's an advisor a little bit like this to the king, um, the king of Rohan. And um, this worm tongue, he, he's, he sits close by the king, and he's pictured at his right shoulder, just whispering words into his mouth. And as he, and as he whispers these words and influences these decisions, he gets this visible picture of the king growing frail, and he's going white, and it's like the life sucked out of him, and there's this struggle for power. And actually, there's this subversion. And although the king is sat on the throne, this guy, Wormtongue, he's he's evil and he's whispering words into his mouth. And actually, though the king sits on the throne, it actually begins to reveal that this guy, Wormtongue, he's actually the guy in control. He's actually the one who's influencing the country. And this situation, had it been left in Lord of the Rings, would have ended up like here it is in Nebuchadnezzar. I mean, sorry, this situation here for Nebuchadnezzar, had it been left, could have ended up like Wormtongue in this king of Rohan if he didn't let their advice go unscrutinized. The king, in laying down his terms here, Nebuchadnezzar now, was issuing the challenge, how reliable is the source in which they base their advice and decisions? And as we see this exposed here in Scripture, we must ask ourselves the same question. When it comes to the life decisions, and times of need, how reliable is the advice in which you base your decisions? Are you listening to bad advisors? Perhaps controlling family members? They might be well-meaning, but actually their reason for giving you certain advice is not for your good. That doesn't apply to children at home, you to obey your parents. But we all have family members, and they can want to shape our lives, don't they? Maybe we've got well-meaning friends, but still the words that they're speaking are unwise. Perhaps it's just things that are around us that you read and that speak to you, magazine columns, blogs, um, or even maybe just the consensus opinion of people in your workplace or around you. It's important to identify the things that speak into our advice and, and scrutinize the things that shape our decisions. For the king, it was easy. He had a team of advisors in front of him. He could see the ones that were speaking to him. But although we don't have a team of advisors around us, surely enough there are hundreds of things in our lives vying for attention and vying to have a say in our life. But the motivation can differ. Perhaps it's for you or those around you, the motivation is a pride in what they're into. The wise men, they were were the champions of their beliefs and their, their ideologies and their wisdom. For some people it can be anything, it can be something simpler like a lifestyle choice, maybe health and fitness, oh it's all about health and fitness. Look after your body, the other things will sort out. Could be something more unusual, complementary health, there's all sorts of things around that, selling benefits to us, telling us this will help us. Maybe it's just not as strange as that, it could just be a regional attitude, or a class based attitude, or we don't do things like that around there, that's not for us, no you don't do that. Or maybe it's just some sort of ideology you've picked up from men's magazines, women's magazines, a certain type of program, a certain group that you may belong to. Or maybe you've just seen someone successful and you're impressed by them and you want to mimic them. Lots of people do this in the world around us. And sure, there may be elements of wisdom, there may be elements of experience in these things, but ultimately, all these things, they're self-seeking. They're looking to, be, to gain influence or to build their brand or to get followers or to get a fan base of some sort. Or to steer you for their own good? And we must ask ourselves these questions Do the influences in your, have, in your life have your interests at heart? Are they wanting to do you good? Just like these wise men advising the king, happy to give their opinion, to pioneer their causes, they would have been leading advocates pioneering their methods to the king. But what about us? Do these people that surround us and these voices in the world around us really have our interests at heart? Or, like the wise men, are they wanting? to actually fulfill and build on their own causes and purposes. Perhaps somebody or people in your life, they just like being in the know. They like to know what's going on, like to be on top of all that's happening and have an opinion so they can enjoy um, a sense of knowing what's happening and having a sense of control and, and gain by getting a stake in your life. It's like that character worm term. And though it's made subtle and it may not always be with evil intentions, these words can feed into our ears and steer us. And they can cast doubt and they can begin to take a position of power. We need to be careful. It's subtle, but it happens and it happens a lot. Also, we need to make sure that we we scrutinize motives then. Because even these wise men, they didn't have good motives, and but as well as the motives, do the things that they're basing the things to say on actually have the power that they claim they have. Once the beliefs and the techniques of these wise men, before they were scrutinized, before they were put to the test, you know that they would have said these things can provide certainty for you, but they couldn't. No matter how much experience these men have, their word was not foolproof, and people's lives, no matter how experienced are short. Isaiah puts it like this in chapter 40. All people are like grass and all their faithfulness is like grass. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but because, because the breath of the Lord blows on them, surely the people are like grass. The grass withers and flowers fall, but the word of, the Lord, of our God stands forever. If we base our decisions entirely on the in, on the. The, on, the, on people's opinions, then we're like a horse. Have you ever seen a shy horse with, with blinkered eyes? And all they can see is what they're pointed at. It's a very limited view. And trusting on people's advice, like these wise men, is, is, is dangerous because there's, it's just a narrow view. It's only, we can only see, no matter how clever a person is, a small view of the world for a short period of time. We need to look to something that endures forever. Okay, more questions. What about us? What about the things that we say to other people? How good is the advice that we give to others, especially one another in our church family? Are we thinking about what we are basing our advice to others on before we speak? Or are we quick to talk? Are we quick to respond flippantly to the things that we see in front of us and the situation, situations we see? Job was famously known for having bad advisers around him. His wife, um, when he started to go through difficult times, and they wondered, "Why is Job going through such difficult times, she said, "Are you still holding on to your integrity? Curse God and die." And then still his friends who gathered with him, they meant well for him, but they they made wrong accusations. They wrongly blamed him of unconfessed sin. They were saying, there must be something that you've done wrong. Repent of it and turn back to God and things will go well for you. And on the surface, well, maybe in some situations, maybe there's some wisdom in that. But they didn't, they weren't seeking God. They were just responding flippantly to what they saw in front of them. So where can we turn for good advice? How do we know what's a credible source for our help? Nebuchadnezzar was surrounded by the wisdom of the world, yet it proved hollow. So do we, uh, that's it, advice is bad. Everyone's trying to mislead us. Do we just reject people steering our lives completely? Well, no, of course not. The Bible clearly encourages to heed advice. Proverbs, it says, listen to advice and accept discipline. And at the end of your life, you'll be counted among the wise. Or in the SV version of Proverbs 19, it says, Listen to advice and accept instruction that you may gain wisdom in the future. And again in Proverbs, Where there is strife, where there is pride, pride, But wisdom is found in those who seek advice. And again in Proverbs 12, The way of fools seems right to them, but the wise listen to advice. So it's not all advice that it's bad. Not all advice, but we just not to take on all advice from all people. But we have a great example in Daniel here um, of, of coming in the right place for advice. And by God's grace, Nebuchadnezzar had Daniel amongst his wise men. We read later that actually Daniel goes, does go on to interpret the dream. He's able to tell the king in great detail what happened. And not only that, he's able to explain the meaning of that dream. We're told that, but he didn't have to. Daniel, we find out in the previous chapter, was actually more learned in in all the teachings of the wise men than than any of the other astrologers, the sorcerers, and the people who would would proclaim these things. It says that even though he was from Judah, even though he followed God, he was ten times better than all the other wise men. He understood the history of the time. He understood the teachings of the time. He could have gone to these things. He could have said, I'm going to look at what everybody's saying to shape my life. I know them well. But what did he do? He gathered with his believing friends and he called on God. Daniel was determined to hear God's word on the matter. And indeed, who else is there to turn to? Who else knows the mind of the king? And in fact, who else knows the mind of all people? Who else's word, as the writer of Hebrews puts it, judges the thoughts and attitudes of our heart? The answer is that there's only one person to turn to that can do this. It says here in Hebrews, nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before his eyes. Daniel didn't rely on his own wisdom. He agreed with the astrologer's statement. He said, There isn't a man on earth who can do as the king asks later on. He said he himself he repeats their words. No wise man, enchanter, magician, or diviner can explain the king's the mystery, the king. To the king, the mystery he has asked about. But he doesn't stop there. Later on in verse 28, he says, he declares this no wise man can explain, but there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. Daniel was a reliable man to turn to. He didn't speak his own words, but he sought after God's words and he spoke them. And as beyond Daniel, obviously. Jesus is our great example as ever on the way to look at advice and weigh advice and what we should base our decisions on. And if we look at Matthew chapter 4 verses 1 to 11, we see Jesus being tempted by Satan t- Satan trying to advise and direct his actions. I'll read it to you. And Jesus was led by the spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. After fasting for 40 days and 40 nights he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him up to a holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, Throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. But Jesus answered him, it is also written, Do not put the Lord your God to test. Again the devil took him to very high mountains and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And the devil left him, and the angels came and attended him. We see a vivid account of Satan trying to direct the actions of Jesus very deliberately um, and to harm him. And what does Jesus do every single time? He refers to scripture. He refers to the word of God. He He refers to Deuteronomy and the Psalms. Jesus knew that actually it was the word of God that is steadfast and true, that brings clarity to situations and brings clarity to what we should do. Satan was clearly trying to harm Jesus here and Perhaps actually those around us, they have perhaps more well-meaning intentions. But ultimately, anything that isn't centred in Jesus and built on his word is not enduring. So we need to bear this in mind when we turn to people for advice. We need to look at why people are speaking words of direction to us and what they're based on. A great example to listen to is the leaders of our church, the elders. It's a good example to go to look to direction, direction. Why? Well, we know their motives are to help us. We look in Hebrews again at chapter 13. It says their motives are helped us because they keep watch over us. And they keep watch over us as those who must give account. The elders' motives are weighed by the fact that they're in knowledge, that they're going to have to stand before God and be accountable for Him, for the words they speak and their actions towards us and the way they lead and direct us. For this reason, it says in Hebrews that we can be confident to submit to them. Not only do they but also because we can see that they don't gain or profit from the things that they teach us by only telling us what we want to hear. As Titus puts it, they must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that they can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. Our leaders don't hold back from talking difficult messages. Mark's message the other week was not easy words to hear when he's talking about um, not giving to dogs what's sacred and not casting pearls to pigs. They're not easy words. They're not necessarily words that are going to gain Mark popularity. They're not easy things to say, but if we listen to them, they'll do us good. Which is in great contrast to those wise men. They wanted to flatter the king, they wanted to say the things that he would like to hear because. That worked well for them. It gained popularity. It gained position. It gained the, the fact that they could be around the king. He liked to hear those words. But however, even Nebuchadnezzar could see the value of, of, the, of true words and the importance of true words rather than just saying what he wanted to hear, even though they wouldn't make them popular because he realized that some things were too important. Sometimes the truth really matters. And we can listen to our elders, not just because of their motives of message, but also because what our elders base their teaching on. It's not just advice, anecdotes from this age, nice things that they've picked up and, and, and popular opinions that go around. No. Have you ever counted the number of Bible references on a, on a sermon on an average Sunday? I have at different times. There's loads of them. We get a lot of value for money, a lot of bang for our buck. It's scripturally based. It's important. The messages here on a Sunday are brought from a strong determination to seek the Word of God and not come from human opinion. What about you? What about the things that you base your advice on in talking to other people? When discussing situations in core group, particularly, what's your first thought when we're getting into a word or when somebody shares something or a situation they're going through in their life? Are you quick to respond to say, let's seek God on this? What does the Bible say? I really feel like, you know, in core groups, we should be hearing this phrase all the time. What does the Bible say? It's great. Make your core group leaders squirm if they're just talking about something and, and you can't see where it's coming from the scriptures. Where you, can't, you can't see if it can be based on that. Ask the question. But it works two ways. Core group leaders, let's ask each other when they're sharing opinions. Well, where does that come from? What's it based on? What does the Bible say about that? Is there, a, is there a character in the Bible that we can look at to help ourselves in this situation? What biblical figure can we look at? Maybe similar situations, how they responded. Of course, how is Jesus an example to us? What maybe would he have done or would, would he have said about a particular situation? It does take some work. It takes time. It's hard work getting to know the scriptures perhaps, but it's trustworthy. As the psalmist said, it will guide you in paths of righteousness. Now, don't hear me wrong. I'm not saying that we should hold back or we shouldn't ever speak advice to other people that we should be guarded about talking to one another. No, we must speak the truth in love. But we must do it so that we're building each other up in Christ, in godly things. We're building each other up in the church and not to mislead one another. We need to get to know God's word, the Bible, so we can use it to shape our life, our decisions and the advice that we give. Just like Jesus did when he was tempted by Satan. He spoke scripture. He knew the truth. He knew what to say. He had a defense. And just like Daniel did, he went to God. The advisors went to the wisdom of the world. But but Daniel, they sought God together along with his friends. And it shows us also in this book that he knew the scriptures too later on in chapter 9. where Daniel states, I, Daniel, understood the scriptures according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah. He knew the words of God. He interpreted them. He got a hold of them. He used them to advise the king and the country. Getting to know the Bible can be overwhelming. And sometimes it can seem too, too intimidating. So we just think, I won't bother. There's no point. I can't get on top of it. What's the point? Maybe some of you at this time of year are looking at starting on perhaps a reading plan. Often there's lots around and and ways in which you can actually read through the Bible in a year. And and the helpful things to do, they're really useful. Um, But also in setting out, and it's good to be disciplined, but we need to be careful. We need to be careful that actually we're not focusing on and being hindered by trying to keep up with a plan. We're not being hindered by just reading and reading and reading, but allow yourself at times to slow down. Take time to consider parts of the scripture that stand out to you. If it's speaking to you, then give it some time to investigate it. Because the most important thing when we come to God's word is not the volume that we read. Although obviously getting into it, you know in our mind getting to grips with the bigger story is important and useful. But it's really important above this that the priority we give to the word is that it's shaping us. Is the word shaping you? Is it feeding you? Is it doing you good? Is it affecting the decisions that you make in your life and the way you speak to one another at church and advise them and encourage them? I love the language that Jesus used about the word of God when Satan was trying to advise him and and direct him. He said this, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. He's quoting Deuteronomy and he's saying here really, and he's talking about they lived by manner, God's people, at one point. But actually, it wasn't that was that sustained them. Actually, no, God's word is nourishment to us. It's our food. It's designed to do us good. It's designed to be the substance of which we live by. Jesus described his word also as a seed. He said if we hold on to it, it will produce many good things. He used these words, he said, The seed on good soil stands for those noble and good heart, who hear the word, retain it, and by persevering they'll produce a crop. And that crop it describes as being a hundred times more than that what was sown. We can look at the Bible and we know that God's intention for it is to do us good. There's not any self gain, it's not like the advisors. It's here to produce a good harvest in us and to make sure that our lives are fruitful. And not only is God's word good, but it's also powerful. Jesus spoke the world into a distance. He used words to create things. There's power in God's word. Jesus ordered a crippled man to stand and he was healed and he could walk instantly by the words of God. And Jesus also declared the forgiveness of sins with words to a paralytic man. And he didn't only just cause him to walk, but he saved him for eternity. He declared words of salvation. So, let's build our life and the advice that we give on God's word, which is powerful, which is enduring, and it is designed to do us good. So that as Paul writes to the Ephesians, we're not to be blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we in all things will grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. The word of the so-called wise men, though they may have sounded good to the king for a while, were useless to really help. And the wise men did well for a time out of their worldly advice. But ultimately, if it wasn't for God's grace, it would have led them to death. And if you're here today and you've never followed God's word, and you're just following the words of this world, the good advice, the blogs, the people on the radio, the people who want to have a say and steer you, yes, they know a little, But ultimately, if we follow the words of this world, it leads to death. But God's words lead to life. His words are true and lead us on paths of righteousness and life. Follow God's word and you can be saved. You can know salvation in him. The wise men did well, but ultimately they'd have been at the mercy of the king. We need to be like Daniel, seeking the word of the Lord, that caused them to be saved and caused them to be led into truth. God, who exists now and throughout history, knows the future. He has power over it, and he has given us his word to guide us in it. And only the word of our God endures forever. I'm going to pray.